Hello, hello. Welcome back to Loki's Librarian. If you are new here, welcome. I am your librarian, Katrina. This is where I am reading through the enormous library books that you see behind me, and then I give you a quick synopsis and tell you what I think about them. So if you like books, just aren't sure what to read next, hit that subscribe button, like and share my videos, and let me know what you think in the comments. This week's book of the week is the last of my 2022 pre-order purchases before my no book buying policy went into effect, making this week's book of the week Michael Malice's latest work, The White Pill, A Tale of Good and Evil. The accompanying cocktail is The Communist, which is one and a half ounces of gin, three quarter ounces of cherry liqueur, one and a quarter ounce of orange juice, one ounce of lemon juice, and two dashes of orange bitters. I feel like this is going to be a very tart, tart cocktail. So let's do this. I am a fan of Michael Malice's writing. I love him on Twitter. I love that, that he is so brilliant at trolling everybody, left or right. He doesn't give a shit. He will troll you if you're an idiot, and I love that about him. I loved Dear Reader, which I read a few months ago, right up there, and I wasn't quite sure what to expect from this book. Um, there, there wasn't a whole lot of information. I mean, the back blurb just says, you know, the Russian Revolution was red as bl blood. Bolsheviks promised they would be building a new society, a worker's paradise. And, you know, they are constructing the largest prison in the world had ever seen, which is very true. The entire Soviet Union, I, if you followed along while I read the Gulag Archipelago, then you know that it was pretty horrifying. Um, so the White Pill is the story, essentially, of the rise and fall of communism in Russia. Uh, but it doesn't start in Russia, probably because the fall of communism was rooted in 19th century America. We're going to get to all of that. All right, what did I say? One and a half ounces of gin? One and a half ounces of gin. So the story opens with Ayn Rand's testimony about the dangers of communism for the House and American Activities Committee. Also with an alarming story about Rand. Um, well, it's not alarming. It's more like informational, but it's also very telling uh, what this story is. So Ayn Rand is, is not her birth name. It's the name she took when she came to America. Her birth name is Alice Rosenbaum. No one in America knew that name not even her American husband, uh, because the paranoia engendered in Russia following the October Revolution and the overthrow of the Tsar ran very deep in Rand. It, it kind of has to be. It becomes a survival instinct when things are as corrupt and violent as communist Russia was. In the early 1920s, before coming to America, Rand had been a college student in Russia. She witnessed the insanity of early Leninism and the intolerance that communism breeds. Uh, it was this firsthand testimony that she provided as to why America did not want communism in its borders and the indications that it was already here, the, the propaganda that was being put out by Russia. And she pointed that stuff out to the House and American Committee. Malice takes us back 60 years to discuss labor rights in America, specifically starting with the 1886 haymaker, hay market riots, excuse me, haymaker's a type of punch, I believe, not punch like, you know, cocktail, punch like in, you know, mixed martial arts. What the hell, why isn't this opening? Thank you. That's what I needed. There we go. As a result of the haymaker, hay market, hay market riots, uh, like eight were left dead, including several police officers. The labor leaders who were inspired by Marxist theory were tried for the deaths and sentenced to hang. To eyeball the three quarter ounces. They don't have a three quarter ounce mark on this one. There you go. Close enough. Uh, the face of the rioters who became the most infamous was the German born American Louis Ling. Ling right here as you can see, was quite good looking. It was his smoldering good looks that um, inspired anarchist Emma Goldman in her quest to see an end to the political caste that had overtaken America. It was Goldman's writings that ultimately inspired our third presidential assassin, assassin Leon Cholgosh, 
Boy, I hope I said that right. He, he spells out how to say it in the book. I'm just running off memory here. Uh, who killed President William McKinley? I will learn more about him, I'm sure, next month when I read the McKinley book. As far as Goldman was involved, she actually wasn't. Um, nothing she had said, done, or written violated any laws, and as much as certain intellectuals would like to make free speech illegal, back then it wasn't even a thought. Free speech was free speech, and it was pretty absolute. Although it did not win her any popularity contest. She, she became kind of persona non grata through in certain areas of, of the American public at that point. Uh, one and a quarter ounces of orange juice. I should have gotten a smaller thing of orange juice, but I guess I have orange juice for the week now. I guess I'm drinking orange juice with breakfast this week. Yeah. Cat, if you're going to be in here, you have to either be on your bed or lay down. You don't get to be jumping on my desk or, or all over the place. An ounce of lemon. Now, where Goldman really hit her political stride was in 1917, when she was encouraging people not to register for the newly instituted draft, which was started by then-President Wilson for World War I. Um, that was labeled, uh, was, I, think it was, I think it was a violation of the Espionage Act is what they eventually got her on, even though technically it falls under free speech to say, hey, you don't have to actually sign up for this draft. But they got her on the violation there. She did, I believe, two years in prison. When she got out, by the time she got out, the Bolshevik Revolution had essentially completed, right? The Tsar was dead. They still had some... Oh, God, I brought two lemons up with me. I'm not sure one will be enough. So she went to Russia. She, she, Russia was her native land. She was an immigrant to the United States. Russia was her native land. So she returned there expecting it to be a worker's paradise based off of Leninist Marxist principles and the promises that were being made to the people of Russia that it was, in fact, a worker's paradise. Should have gotten the large lemons. It was not a worker's paradise. She was only in Russia for a few years. I, I mean, like four years maybe three years, when she realized that not all was as had been promised. And once she became very aware of the fraud that was being perpetrated, she bolted. She left Russia. I think she went back to America, but she might have been ended up in England, where her speaking out about communism and the evils thereof also made her persona non grata. Apparently, just being outspoken and free with your speech is not a thing to win you any popularity. Something I can attest to personally. Two dashes of orange bitters. My poor husband has lost friends over my speaking out, but God bless him, he stands by me. He, he's never once said, Katrina, can you please tone it down a bit? He just lets me say and do whatever the hell I want to say and do, and just one of the many things I love about him. I'm going to shake this really quick. That is quite cold now. Now, when she left Russia, she wrote a book called My Disillusionment in Russia. Uh, you can actually still get it. It's available on Amazon. You have to look it up. It's not going to like just show up on a search algorithm, but it's there. You can find it. I add it to my wish list for when I can, you know, buy books again. They did say it wasn't necessarily an or a red cocktail. It is kind of a pinky orange. Looks almost like a grapefruit colored. Oh well. Now, between Rand and Goldman speaking out about communism, we had the foundational ideas that pushed back, like hard pushed back, against the spread of communism in the West. Not quite hard enough to prevent FDR's nomination and subsequent four elections to the White House and the ongoing damage that his policies implemented in the United States. And I mean, far-reaching, ongoing damage. We, we are still feeling those ripple effects today, um, 70 years later. But it was enough to ensure that there was a constant and vigilant pushback against the encroachments of communism. Now, the next several chapters were, in fact, 
a good chunk of the rest of the book, was a retelling of the horrors of communism in Russia uh, from the kangaroo courts described so aptly in the Gulag Archipelago to the abuses in the Ukraine described in the Red Famine um, through the whole sorry uh, Walter Duranty debacle that was discussed in the, um, the Grey Lady Winked. All of these were covered pretty detailed. So in fact, literally, you, if you want to bypass reading the Gulag Archipelago, the Red Famine, and the, the Grey Lady Winked, which I don't recommend. All three are excellent books in their own. But if you want kind of a condensed version of it, The White Pill is going to be your resource. All right, It condenses all of that into one location for you. But it's a depressing romp, romp through one of the world's darkest historical chapters. And there was just nothing, there is nothing good about communism. People don't understand this because the intellectuals are still pushing it, especially on college campuses, but communism is just evil from the word go. Let's try this. Oh, there's the tart. Oh yeah, that's tart. Whew. Uh, it does include some wonderful first-hand accounts as told by Gulag survivor Eleanor Lipor, who was the author of 11 years in Soviet prison camps. Uh, Lipper was kind of another nail in the coffin of Soviet socialism, at least in the West. Uh, Lipper was not Russian. She was, I believe, Swedish. So when she was released from the Gulag, she was repatriated to Sweden, where she immediately wrote a book about her experiences. Yeah, that book came out right at the same time that uh, FDR's former vice president, a uh, guy named Wallace, I believe. I'll confirm it. But he, he was he was trying to put in his own presidential bid. And he had made trips to Russia and was one of the useful idiots that Stalin liked to show the Potemkin villages. And he fell for it hook, line, and sinker. He was like, no, the Russians are great. They're doing fine. There's nothing wrong with communism. And then Lipper's book came out and was like, yeah, you're a f***ing idiot and here's why. And uh, that definitely, definitely had an impact on whether or not Wallace got elected. Among the accounts of her experiences, Lipper shares the tales of transportation wherein the guards would allow male inmates into the women's transport car, resulting in mass rape. When the guards broke it up, if the men weren't done, they'd rape the young boys in the men's car. Malice outlines in great detail how destructive communism was to families in the family unit. Just entire generations decimated and sent to die in the camps. Uh, millions dead, children victimized all in the name of this ideology that is so great for the world, apparently. And then he sheds some light on the evil ripples that spread out as part of the greater United so Soviet Socialist Republic, that's the USSR, with the satellite states, including the Hungarian Revolt in 1956, the Prague Spring in 1968. He doesn't go into those in detail, but he certainly mentions them because they were um, key incidents that helped shake the foundation of communism and eventually bring it down. It, those were each crushed in their own day by the USSR. Uh, the more heartbreaking and hopeful chapters are where he describes how Germany was split post-World War II. Most people are aware that Germany was split into East to West. I mean, I, I think most people are like, oh, East Berlin, West Berlin. They'll have some vague idea of what that means. I'm probably, I mean, it's entirely possible that Gen Z has no idea and they think they're talking about like, you know, South Compton or, you know, West LA, East LA as in, Geogra geography, not actual political entities. But with post-World War II, for, for any Gen Zers who might be watching and are not aware of this, the West, it was literally split in half. The country was split in half, all right? And you had the West was falling under the, the province and influence of Europe and America, and the East was under the protectorate of the USSR. It was, it was one of the sat satellite Soviet social states. 
Berlin, however, is not in the middle of the country. Most people think that that was the middle of the country. The reason Berlin was split the way it was is because Berlin at that time was the capital of all of Germany. Now, when East and West split, Bonn became the temporary capital of West Berlin, or West Germany, excuse me. But Berlin itself remained its own capital in the East. But per the ter treaty terms of World War II, Berlin itself was split into four protectorates, and you had uh, England, France, America, and Russia as the protectorates, right? So England, France, America were all West Berlin, and then East Berlin was around it. So the wall, when it was built, was built around West Berlin. So it was literally the only, it was almost like a free zone inside of a prison, but the free zone was the one that was walled in. Um, so it was fully located in the German Democratic Republic, the GDR. West Germany was the Federal Republic of Germany, FRG. Now, when the wall went up in Berlin, it surrounded the parts of Berlin that fell under the control of the FGR, the West. So West Berlin's inside the wall. I'm repeating myself here. The first part of the wall was basic barbed wire. It was about three feet tall. It started going up on August 13th, 1961. And this is where the hope part comes in. Um, because we have this iconic photo of Conrad Schumann, right? He had been a gate AR guard on the border. Schumann was watching this wire being strung and decided no more. In World War II and all of the attendant horrors that Germany had already inflicted on her fellow citizens was not even 20 years past. And Schumann jumped the fence. He was one of only nine guards to do the same thing in those first few days. And he's, Schumann's famous for it because photographer Peter Lieberg was right in the right place at the right time to catch the photo. He had experience photographing moving objects because he used to, he was taking used to take pictures or his main photography subject was racehorses in motion. And he knew by the way Schumann was pacing back and forth and watching this wire go up that something was happening. And so when Schumann made the leap, Bleiberg was ready with his camera and Schumann leapt into history that way. And that's what's hopeful. That that there are only nine of them really small in comparison, right? Like it's an infinitesimal percentage point of people who are rebelling against it. But that's an early crack in the in the gate AR. It's the first sign that not everyone that was part of the machine running things agreed with what was going on. Uh, other signs included Stasi agents who tried to resign. Um, there's one heartbreaking anecdote in there who he tried to resign but was not allowed to. The Stasi basically forced his wife to divorce him and then said, hey, your wife divorced you anyways, why don't you stay in the service? We can't let you leave. You know too much about how we operate, we can't let you leave. Which was very much an implicit threat, right? Because if you leave, we're gonna just chuck your ass in jail because we can't let you leave. And there's lots of, of charming anecdotes like this in the story, right? The actual lived experiences of people in these communist zones completely ignored. Um, one of the more frightening aspects is that after reunification Germany opened the Stasi files and you could see who had formed on you and this gave birth to an entirely new career field those who would provide the files to the person asking provide a little context and then hold their hands and be a shoulder to cry on when the person finds out that for example it was their husband who had been reporting on them every day to the Stasi like every week of their marriage for 10 years or the woman who went to see who had reported on her the Stasi and found out that it was her live-in boyfriend who she had just left that morning to come to the Stasi headquarters to see who had reported on her. It's horrifying, heartbreaking. 
Um, something I didn't know is that several of the concentration camps that had been emptied of Holocaust survivors at the close of World War II were back in active use by the 1950s as camp for dissidents against communist takeover in East Germany. Hundreds of thousands more died in those camps after they were liberated, courtesy of the communist regime. Uh, if you ever find yourself in Berlin, there is a museum at the most famous wall crossing, the uh, House on Checkpoint Charlie, that highlights all the ways that people tried to make it over the wall to freedom, uh, those who succeeded and those who died trying. Or if you can't afford a trip to Germany, you can read the White Pill for 2340 hardcover edition or 999 for the Kindle edition on Amazon. Michael covers these daring escapes and attempts for you. It's pretty thorough too. It, it jives with what I, and I haven't been at, in Berlin in 20 years. I was there in 2004, but Checkpoint Charlie stands out in my memory. Like I, it, like everything he's talking about, I remember seeing the photographs, the photographic displays that went with these attempts. So it was pretty heartbreaking, um, including the kid who was shot like mere feet from the freedom in West Berlin and was just left to die there because the West couldn't get him out without being shot at by the East and the East wouldn't help him because he was a traitor who was fleeing to the West. That's pretty disgusting. All of this leads up to the collapse starting and it's not fast. The cracks have been forming since Stalin's death in 1953 when Nikita Khrushchev took over and delivered his uh, secret speech, which basically denounced everything about Stalinism. Now, 53, the wall, technically I believe the final nail in the coffin of the USSR occurred in 1991. I think that's when the nation itself, or the, the Soviet Republic disbanded. So that would be 38 years. Yeah, I think that's 38 years. Um, so it's nearly 40 years for the collapse to complete. But that denunciation of Stalinism is, is how it starts. I mean, even before the wall went up, the foundation had cracks in it. And in the West, the rise of two leaders were the final wedges that kind of burst apart the USSR at the seams. So in America, we had Ronald Reagan, who was voted into office in 1980. In the UK, they had Margaret Thatcher. And to the, the third wedge that burst apart this evil conglomeration uh, came from Russia. It would have to, because otherwise it would still be a thing. So in the 1980s, Russia had Mikhail Gorbachev. Now, Gorbachev's rising in the Communist Party did not have a propitious start. Both of his grandparents had been um, class traitors and were taken away to, or class enemies, excuse me. They had been taken to the gulags. And since his bloodline now had these class traitors, class enemies, Gorbachev himself was an outcast among his peers in school because you don't want to have anything to do with an outcast family that will destroy your family. And so it just, it was a very horrible, horrible thing. But he somehow managed to overcome that stigma, rose through the ranks, and was made president of the USSR in the 1980s, which means not just Russia, but Russia and all the satellite states. So the Ukraine, Lithuania, Armenia, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, all of it became satellite states of Russia. In the rising, Gorbachev became quite trusted within the party, which is how he came to be president, and was able to travel to the West quite extensively. And in traveling, he saw everything that the West did was better, was better than he'd been led to believe by the leaders. And gradually, Gorbachev began a working relationship with Thatcher and Reagan. And kind of one by one, the satellite states began voting for independence, and one by one, Gorbachev let them leave. I can only imagine what the KGB thought of all that. Oh, to get a look at their secret files. I would be remiss if I don't mention, at least at least mention Romania and Nikolai and Elena Ceausescu. I have to mention them. 
here's why. Let's see if I can get a non-reflective picture here. There we go. We've got Margaret Thatcher up here, Emma Goldman right there, Anne Rand over here, Elena Ceausescu. Took me forever to figure out who that was. I was like, who the hell is that bitch at the bottom? But I figured it out finally. It's Elena Ceausescu. Now, the reason she made it when everybody else was kind of anti-communism, at least this is my opinion. I'm not sure if this is true, but I can only speculate based on the cover art. Good rises over evil. The Ceausescus were particularly malevolent and met an all-too-justified end at the hands of a firing squad on December 25th, 1989, which I am old enough to actually remember having seen the news casts on that one and going, oh, that sounds like a grim way to die. And I, I mean, I was, I was 12, right? I didn't have much thought beyond that's horrifying. They deserved it. They deserved every one of the like 100 plus bullets that riddled their bodies. Um, among their crimes were, were draining the National Treasury of Romania into their personal bank accounts. They, they were on their way out of the country when they were captured and they had well padded foreign bank accounts. They were hoping to live out their lives. They, what they didn't funnel into their own bank accounts, they used to build a people's palace, which was a monstrous edifice that was going to be their own personal residence. It's actually, I think Malice says it's the heaviest building in the world, which I mean, think about it. That, that means it's heavier than the pyramids. It's heavier than the Taj Mahal. Uh, I mean, how big did it have to be? My God, I'm, I'm, I think he said he was aiming for like three times the size of Versailles. Versailles isn't huge on its own, right? So it just horrible people. But among those other things, um, which, you know, is bad for the economy, bad for the people. But they also insisted that all unborn babies were property of the state and they banned both abortion and birth control. So for those of you who think that it's only the, uh, the right wing extremists who don't want you to be able to have abortion and birth control. No, this was very much a left wing thing at one point too. And, uh, and if a woman had the horrifying trauma of a miscarriage, she had better prepared to defend it as a natural occurrence because, and she'd probably still end up in jail because how dare she miscarry that baby was property of the state. Um, and the whole section was like a, a real life version of the handmaid's tale, but with the ironic twist that it was enforced by communist policies, not, you know, right wing religious nuts that we're all supposed to fear. Don't get me wrong, there are some bad right-wingers, but, yeah, the irony is just too rich. Uh, the USSR itself, yeah, voted itself into oblivion on December 31st, 1991, after literally every single member state, including Russia, voted on independence. Uh, Boris Yeltsin was president of Russia at that time and held off a coup attempt concurrent with Gorbachev, whose last official act was to disband the USSR on December 31st, 1991. So why is the book called The White Pill? I mean, The White Pill is a metaphor for hopefulness and optimism, right? And this book was full of the horrifying history of communism, um, specifically how it applies in Russia. I mean, I've, there's excellent books. I've read one of them on communism in China. I have one that I'm planning to read on Cambodia. There's the, you know, I already read Dear Reader, which highlights the history in North Korea. So, and I read, oh my God, I've read quite a few books on communism. So I also read the, the book on, on, um, Che Guevara. So yeah, there's all sorts of horrifying history on communism. And of course I read, yeah, I've read a lot of books on communism. <laughs> like, wow, I'm working my way towards expert level knowledge here. But the optimism and hopefulness is that while evil will always exist, good generally rises above, like well above. 
communism didn't fall because we fought back so hard. I mean, we fought back. That's how North Korea came to be. That's what the Vietnam War was about, the Cuban Missile Crisis. And the whole long, horrifying 40-year history of the Cold War was the West fighting back against communism. But where the West won was the marketplace of ideas. This, incidentally, is why the left is trying so hard to suppress speech here in America, is because every time somebody speaks out against communism, the, the, the marketplace of ideas raises the good of freedom well above the evil suppression of communism. Most, most people of average intellect recognize the difference and are able to say, no, I don't, in fact, need the state to tell me what I can do. I'm capable of making this decision on my own. Most people. Which is why they're trying so hard to indoctrinate children in schools, but that's not the topic of this book. Gorbachev was swayed by seeing how things really were in the West. Boris Yeltsin was primed and poised to oversee the referendum that pulled Russia out of the USSR because he saw how rich and luxurious even the poorest people in America lived compared to some of the wealthiest in Russia. Think about that. I mean, truth time, folks, if you were blessed enough to be born in the United States, you are the 1%. I mean, you compare yourself to the rest of the planet, you are the 1%. And the leaders of the USSR came to see this, which is why it dissolved mostly peacefully in the 1980s. All of this happened as a result of exposure to Western ideals, and the evil that is communism cannot survive exposure to the light, which is why they try so hard to suppress it. And that's why Michael Malice fights so hard to expose it. I mean, he was born in the Ukraine. His dedication is to his parents who got him out, and for all the children who never made it. My cat can sense I'm getting distressed. She's purring. I really hope the microphone's not so sensitive as picking up the purrs. I'm going to have a hell of a time editing if I have to edit around purrs. Cat, say hi to the world. World, this is gink. The white pill is that there are those like Malice who continue to fight. James Lindsay, Helen Pluckrose, Joe Rogan, Young May Park. There are a lot of people who continue to fight the good fight. The knowledge is out there. Look it up, read the books, and you too can join the fight. I mean, I was just giving a laundry list of all the books I've read that are specifically about the evils of communism. Um, you can be part of the white pill. Uh, that, that optimism and hope that the socialist communist ideals that have been slowly creeping through the American dream can be blown back by the light of truth. That's the white pill. And that's it this week. Um, if you like what you saw, don't forget to hit that subscribe button. I will see you guys next Sunday.